You're listening to the Farmers Trainers Podcast, Season 5, Episode 10, published on May 9th, 2023. This episode, we'll be talking to Ed Gelhouse about red dots. Sit back, relax, and listen to today's Farmers Trainers Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Farmers Trainers Association. Visit their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage offer and their competitive pricing. All certified instructors can apply for FTA coverage. Remember, for listening to this podcast, you can get 10% off on your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Manus X. I've been a longtime Manus user from their original Manus X to the new Manus X10 that came out with a couple of years ago, and now excited about their most recent product, Manus Blackbeard X. The Manus Blackbeard X combines the Manus 10 and the Manus Blackbeard system into one platform for the AR-15. It unleashes a completely new capability with in-depth dynamic shooting analysis, including motion-based analysis and multi-target engagement, something no one has done before. Manus Blackbeard X connects to your smartphone via Bluetooth and can easily download the Manus X application for Android and iOS. The Manus X application gives you history on all your previous sessions, as well as new drills for the modern sporting rifle. Manus X changed the way I train, and I think you'll find the Manus Blackbeard X is a great training aid for yourself and your students. Check out Manus X for more information on their Manus products, including the new Manus Blackbeard systems. That is ManusX.com. We bring this podcast support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Today, we're joined by Eric Gelhouse from Cougar Mountain Solutions. Welcome, Eric, and thanks for coming on the show today. Talk to our uh, listeners. Rob, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay. Well, not everybody might know who Eric Gelhouse is, but for our audience, can you go along and tell our audience a little bit about your background? Briefly, a um, little bit different side of backgrounds maybe than some folks have. Uh, like a lot of folks in the industry, I'm prior military um, served in the army from the Cold War into the global war on terror with a ground combat deployment to the Middle East. Uh, retired out of law enforcement after 29 years as a patrol sergeant a few years back. Did a lot of the things that that active cops are able to do: patrol, community-oriented policing, gang suppression, narcotics, field training, use of force. Started teaching at Gunsight in 20, sorry, 2000. Yeah, started teaching down there in 2000. I've been on staff since. Um, and then have my own company, Career Mountain Solutions, which I spun up about the time I retired and was fortunate enough to do the gun writer thing. And kind of what I think maybe sets me apart from some is I went the academic route. So I've got a master's in public administration and my coursework there focused on use of force and explaining it. Very good background. That's uh, that's great. Probably lend itself very well to our discussion today about red dots and such. So the first thing I'll uh, kind of throw out there about red dots are what what are some of the real good uses for uh, red dots? They allow the brain and the eyes to work the way the brain and eyes want to work. Human beings, we're not used to focusing on something at arm's length during a fight. We're used to focusing on what the scary thing is. Um, That's how we fought with projectile weapons for tens of thousands of years was we looked at what we wanted to hit and we did it. Um, If you think back to Little League or flag football when you were a kid, you weren't looking at the ball itself. You were looking at what you wanted to throw the ball to, or in my case, what I was going to drop when it was thrown at me. So mm-hmm. that was a joke. Yeah. Everybody's going to laugh. <laughs> um, 
So it lets you look there and there, It's which is a more natural thing. Um, it does get both eyes open, right? If you're working the dot correctly, you're, you're keeping both eyes open while you're, while you're working with the dot. You're not fixating on it. Uh, that gives you better situational awareness, lets you see more of what's going on in the environment. Uh, as we get older and we have eyesight issues start to come into play, it's easier to work that route than it is to try to focus on something at arm's length. Mm -hmm. And I can, uh, I can attest to, I'm one of those uh, people with, uh, my eyes aren't as good as they used to be. And if I don't have really good contrast between the front and the rear sight, I have a hard time lining those things up where red dot, you know, as you said, I can focus on the target, just put the red dot on it. And, uh, that's where it's going to go. And, you know, my trigger squeeze, all those are all the same. And that makes, uh, makes, makes me a, a um, you know, allows me to function better than uh, going along and trying to line up something that is uh, blurry. Yeah. The year, probably in 2010, I took a class from Pat McNamara and Pat's roughly my age. And he was talking about a concept of close blur and far blur. And that if your eyesight was getting to the point where you couldn't focus on the front sight, except that you're going to have a blur the sights and you're going to have a blur of the target. And if you can put the close blur in the center of the far blur, it's going to be easy, easier for you. And once I kind of started to process that I wasn't getting a crisp sight picture, that I was getting that close blur, um, when I started the transition to dots um, a year or two later, it made it a lot easier to understand that. Mm -hmm. uh, how long have you been uh, work, running a dot? Put my first dot on a pistol in 2010. Um, it was an Insights MRDS that sat up on a dovetail mount on a 1911 so it kind of looked like an optic on an m4 with a whole bunch of boreline sightline offset um, that was more for ex experiment uh all of 2012 i had a trigicon rmr on a m and smith and wesson mmp for work it was kind of an experiment we figured this would probably come at some point and we wanted to have some idea of how they would work in a law enforcement context um there were no holsters that supported dots at the time. So there was a lot of work with EMT shears, Dremel tools, and emery cloth to get open up holsters to where he could work the dots with it. Um, the first dot I had on the gun lasted about eight months, pretty decent round count on it. And then it broke. Um, and I broke a series of dots over the next several months. So probably about 15 or so dots over the course of the year. Um, and I walked away from it. I didn't trust them at that era mechanically or electronically that they would hold up. Uh, it wasn't until, until 2018 that I came back to the dots. Mm -hmm. What were the main things that were breaking on the dots for you back then? For me, um, with a Trigicon RMR on an MMP, I was breaking them mechanically at the windage. There were plenty of folks who were breaking them electronically, and those seemed to be, Glock, seemed to be on Glock pistols, that they were having electronic failures. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, I haven't been able to sit down and talk with an engineer about it, but I wanted I'd like to find somebody who understands recoil well enough to tell me why the difference is in the failures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're running the M and P and other people were running Glocks and you had uh, different types of failures on both. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time were you running like suppressor heights the sites so you could go to you know backup irons or Yes. Okay. So back then there, there were no core or MOS mounting systems. Uh, the only way you were putting, the only two ways you were putting an optic on a gun was either a uh, aftermarket 
bracket that would replace the rear dovetail site and then sit it up very high, or you were sending it off to a, a small handful of machinists or gunsmiths that were milling the slide specific for the optics. And that's what I had done. And in both cases um, on those guns, they were milled specifically for a Trichicon RMR and they, they had the suppressor height sights on them. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's interesting uh, from that standpoint. What are some of the uh, bad things that you've noticed um, when it comes to, you know, red dots besides, you know, the, the, the basic, the difference between the two failures there. Specifically um, folks thinking that it's a panacea just by its mere presence, right? Trying to buy skill. Um, you've got to put in the work with it. So one of the things that we explain in the, in the pistol mounted optics classes at Gunsight or those that I do is there's things that change and there's things that don't change. So my, shooting platform, whatever it is, doesn't change just because I go to a dot. Um, the concept of a flash sight picture doesn't change, but we'll talk about visual attention in a sec. Um, my grip on the pistol doesn't change when I'm going to a dot. My trigger press doesn't have to change because I go to a dot, but it, most folks find that having a dot will change their trigger press. So it's a weird little thing, right? You're not changing it to make the adjustment, but the adjustment will usually end up causing you some changes to how you manipulate the gun. The visual attention, getting it off, stopping focusing on the dot and starting to focus on the, the target or the threat is probably the hardest thing to convey. Um, accepting that there is a significant size difference between the size of the dot and the traditional front sight, meaning that if you sort like you're thinking it's moving, yeah, your, your iron sight moves too, but it seems to move less because of the size of it. Mm -hmm. So getting people to kind of accept um, a degree of imperfection that they, they were still experiencing with irons, um, but they think shouldn't be there because we've gone to the optic there. So trying to get them to shift their visual attention, trying to get them to accept, and I call it imperfection. That it, it may not be a just accept the wobble. Um, and understanding you don't have to micrometer the dot into the center and then not expecting it to solve every problem without work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's your recommendation when it comes to the size of a dot that a uh, student runs? I'm comfortable with anything in the three to six MOA range. So mm -hmm. I came up on aim points on rifles uh, starting late nineties where that was a four MOA dot. So with aim point now having a 3.25 dot, Trigicon has a three three-ish minute of angle dot. I can't tell you exactly what it is off the top of my head. Um, anything in there works. The six MOA dot's good. You know, and your iron sights are anywhere from 11 to 16 MOA. So it, anything in that three to six range for me works pretty well. Smaller mm -hmm. than three is, it, I find it difficult to work with. So I was reminded of that when I picked up a new Aimpoint T2 uh, last week and was trying to figure out why the dot was so small. <laughs> yeah the uh the dot uh depending upon what your usage is i mean if you're out in bright sunlight and uh, outside you probably need it to be brighter um you know no matter what the size is compared to if it's dark out but if it's dark you probably don't want the brightness up quite as much but you got to find a happy median especially if you're going to be switching between those uh frequently with the way i will set uh, my dot up unless I'm down in Arizona in the summer, in the summertime, like July and August is I'll go into a light colored room 
shine either a weapon mounted light or my handheld light on the far wall on the light colored wall and then adjust the dot to where i can see it over that white light whenever i'm going to set it and i just leave it there is the dot just visible above the white light then we're good um, again in the exception being in the arizona desert in the summertime mm-hmm. yep that's extremely bright and you can't hit you gotta take it and bright and turn it up a couple notches for sure uh, do you have a specific brand that you like now? So the caveat is I worked for Aimpoint for four years in the mm -hmm. late 00s after I came back from the Middle East. I am very partial for a duty optic uh, towards Aimpoint's Acro P2, the current version that's been out for uh, probably 18 months now, or mm -hmm. now at least announced 18 months now. Um, I have a couple three pistols with the Acro P2 on it, um, but that it's not that it's too big of an optic for concealed carry because I carry, I have a pistol set up for concealed carry with that on there, but it has a couple sharp et sharper edges on the back end that will print. So for concealed carry, I'm fine with a Trigicon um, RMR or the, the open emitter hollow suns just because of the way they're cut. They tend to print less. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They got more of a oval kind of shape to them. Yeah, it's there's there's like a swath, almost like the Nike swoop on mm -hmm. when you look at it from the side that doesn't seem to print as badly or print the same way that kind of the mailbox uh, design of the Acro prints. Yeah, the mailbox, the bread box uh, that Acro Pro has, you know, is a little square and, and allows for easy, easier printing. I mean, I, there are ways that you can always go a lot long and mitigate it but there's it's uh seem, seems from what i've seen a little bit easier if you put on the same gun put in the same holster mm -hmm. one's gonna one's gonna print easier than uh than the other one yes or uh, what's your uh preference between uh the closed emitter versus the open emitter that, that varies between is it a duty optic or something i'm running open openly carried out in the woods or carrying concealed if i'm carrying concealed i'll accept a little bit of belly button lint um or skin getting into the open emitter optic uh, it, the open emitter optics that were more susceptible to dirt dust crud um, and environmental stuff so for an openly carried optic i prefer a closed emitter mm -hmm. yeah it's okay. more the role than the, the design yeah because uh, one of the, one of the things that's kind of interesting that i've heard uh you mentioned on previous uh, podcasts you've been on and such is you know having those open emitters you tend to also go along and challenge your students to figure out how to work around them when they're when something gets gets in them and so yeah one of the things that i include in my classes and i did did a block the last couple of years at the range master TACCON was on is on broken blocked emitter broken blocked optics sorry and go through okay if it's if these various things happen how do you fix them not that it's, I'm necessarily going to get anybody to shoot a PC, PPC match that way, but if I can give their brain the path to solving the problem, if they experience that kind of failure, then they're going to be able to work through it that much quicker. And we'll do downed optics where the battery has died. We'll do the window being compromised. We can do the optic being full of crud. Um, had this happen to a student a couple of years ago in a carbine class. He was using an open emitter optic and a belt holster, went prone with the rifle pretty aggressively and scooped up a bunch of Mother Earth. And when he went to stand up, you could see the whole optic full of the dirt. And I'm like, okay, just do me a favor, take a sight picture with your pistol. And that's when he found out what had happened to him. Um, there's a constant concern on the internet 
about optics in the rain or optics in wet weather. So one of the things I do in the class to kind of take away the novelty, let the brain see the different pathways is we'll use a squirt bottle on the optics, give it a couple squirts of water while it's in the holster. And then the student draws and shoots a drill with that wet optic so they can see what actually happens to it, see how it, how it plays out over the course of firing a few rounds. We'll do that a couple of times so they can see it in different ways before we move on. But it's just it's to take away the, the, the novelty and let them understand how they can work through and solve the problem, even when the conditions aren't perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, we know, you know if you're ever going to need something, it's probably going to be in the, wor- in, the, in the worst possible conditions you know, possible snowstorm, rainstorm, uh, you know, things along those lines. And you've got to know how to, you know, properly sight, sight your gun, even if you can't use the, uh, the dots, just, you know, essentially the same uh, scenario. If your, uh, iron sights got ripped off for, because of some problem, you got to be able to go along, get to that natural point of aim and know that if you go along and put the back square part of your gun and you cover the target with that your sight your shots at a reasonable distance will still hit the target might not be as precise but they will be they will hit the target which is what it's all about in a self-defense situation yeah and so if you look at a lot of times we think of sighted fires being the front sight in the rear sight equal amount of light equal amount of height but look mm-hmm. at the work jim cirillo did on the nypd stakeout squad where he was presenting the pistol looking at the back strap of the revolver and the hammer but being able to see the sides of the cylinder and if he could see either side of the cylinder, then he knew the gut, the orientation of the handgun was off and he needed to correct it. So one of the ways we work through some of this is with slide orientation. I like the backplate, the, the backplate cover as my mm-hmm. aiming reference, but other people like the shape of the optic. Other people like working down the side of the slide. But we show all those options in classes and give folks a chance to see what works for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... You know, once you get the students and you take them through that, like you said, you know, the then allows them to have those options in case they ever get in that situation to where the optics failed or there is water uh, on it, different things along those lines. And one of the things, too, that they realize very quickly, especially if it's water or dirt, is if they get the first shots off, that recoil impulse will most of the time shake most of that out of the way. Now, it won't turn the the optic back on if the battery goes dead or something else like that, but you'll at least be able to look through the window at that point. Yes. Which then allows you, if you got, you know, suppressor level sights or you, your sights are tall enough, you could, you know, go to your backup iron sights without a problem for more precise shots on, on target. And that's the starting point of that whole process is kill the dots and then work with the irons and then work with all these other things. The good news is, we're getting now optics that sit low enough and that the mounting solutions are low enough that we're almost te- to where we can use regular height sights with some of these optics. Um, I have an MMP shield that's an off-duty pistol, and I can use the stock sights that came with that gun with it. Uh, I have another MMP that was cut by uh, dug up an ATEI. And he sells a much lower height sight that goes with that. It's not the full suppressor heights. It's barely noticeable different um, height-wise from traditional iron sights just because he's got it so low. So the good news is we're getting smaller sights too, smaller mm-hmm. iron sights. Yep. Yeah. And again, you know, the, the manufacturers are lining them up to, you know, for different purposes people have and, uh, you know, making the iron sights fit better in, which, you know, smaller iron sights mean that it won't snag 
quite as easily on clothes and different things like that. And then with uh, lower red dot sites, they uh, are down lower, so you don't necessarily need need taller sites. Right. So that's really good. I've had my my uh, optic go out one time during a Moss AOP uh, class, and I had to go to uh, backup iron sights until I could swap out to my backup pistol. But it was you know one of those things you got to learn, and it's a good experience from time to time, so the brain knows what to do in those kind of situations. What was the failure point? Failure point was uh, it was electronic problem on a okay. Hollow Sun four hundred seven C. Okay. So end up sending back. They sent me a new one. I haven't had a problem since. Hollowson's got a really good reputation for the quality of their warranty service, um, how how quickly and easily they are to deal with on that. Um, and they do seem to listen to the customers in terms of what they're designing. Mm-hmm. Yes, agreed. Um, one of the things I just came back from the NRA annual meeting show is Hollowson was showing off their new uh, model, which is actually have a larger window for it for those uh uh, for those uh, shooters that want to have a smaller or have a larger uh, window to look through, now they've got an option with Hollow Sun, and you know a lot of them are going smaller. But you know, there's sometimes some some instances where you want to have a larger window to be able to see things. Yes, I I have been told I have one of those Hollow Sun competition optics coming to look at. I'm currently looking at a couple optics, uh, brand new optics from CNH Precision. Uh, I have one mounted and getting ready to mount the other one and doing some work with those and seeing how the, those kind of play out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a couple from uh, AccuFire that I'm testing right now. Okay. So I will uh, check and see what what uh, how they work uh, under load. I just uh, haven't had time with all the other <laughs> things going on in my life, doing doing things. As you can see, uh, right, Eric can see over my shoulder that I've got, got, them, uh, got them sitting there and they're still in the plastic. So haven't popped them open yet, but I will be because uh, anxious to see how how those will uh, work compared to my uh, hollow suns that I got. Because I've got three of those that are run on my uh, carry and backup guns. Yeah. It's funny. We was talking about aim point earlier. I have an aim point T1 on a Glock pistol, which is several years old. So, And still works, huh? Still works. You know, well, that's really good. Uh, it it shows the uh how good the electronics have gotten uh, mm-hmm. you know that, that that you can run something and you don't have that many failures and i know for my hollow suns i've put probably at least uh five thousand rounds through each of them uh you know prone position doing all different uh type of uh, position work with them and i can say they um they held up well. You know, they get some dirt in them, different things along those lines. But if you learn how to sight down the side of the slide, um, backplate, those type of ways, you can get that first shot. And then miraculously, the dirt or the uh, water, whatever's in it, kind of floats away. And then you can get back to business with a more precise shots. And it's, it's also been interesting to see how, over time, the mounting solutions uh, that people have developed and, and the different paths so that... In point T1 that's sitting on a Glock, that's on a Unity Tactical Atom mount where they came up with one l- very large dovetail that took up most of the back of the slide. And then they were just cut for the different the different optics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that one's kind of stalled. They've got a replacement for it that came out right before COVID hit, but they haven't gone too much farther with that because of other projects. So it, it's fascinating to see where the different companies are going with different solutions over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can't recall which company is, but they actually uh, went along. They said they've got a specific uh, 
site that they've got cut into their to their guns now and that was at the annual meeting again too but i can't remember what the, what the brand was but they've got it cut for one specific uh site so that it fits fits you know very snugly you don't have movement you don't have uh all those kind of factors to it and i could see where pistol manufacturers instead of just giving you a plate to to bolt to that they may actually go along and start supplying you know the optics with the gun to make sure that they're installed as precisely as possible um sig has done a really good job of that selling mm-hmm. their pistols with their optics yeah their romeo both, sites and things both glock yeah. and smith now have SKUs that are initially at least available law enforcement purchase only where they are cutting the slides at the factory for the RMR and the ac- the Aimpoint Acro P2. And Glock, I know, is doing the Holosun because the, that's the gun, new gun sight service pistol. So you're getting manufacturers that are cutting the slides for those specific optics. So you, people don't have to worry about plates. You just have to decide on the footprint. Um, mm-hmm. And once you decide on the footprint, it, you can figure out what optic you want to go with. I know initially the... Aimpoint Acro had a standalone footprint, but now there are three companies, uh, Aimpoint, Steiner, and CNH Precision that are making enclosed emitter optics that will fit onto the Aimpoint footprint. And there's a number of companies making optics that fit onto the Trigicon RMR footprint. And that's only going to benefit the end user by giving them more choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure give it you know another four or five years, they'll probably be settled down to you know a couple different footprints. Because, you know, then it's going to be, then it's going to be going along and saying, okay, who can manufacture it and manufacture, you know, something that works better, you know, cheaper, uh, those, those type of uh, questions and going along and having uh, a unique uh, footprint for your optic isn't going to be a, a good one for going along selling to the consumers or, or to law enforcement too. Yeah, I think we'll see. Well, right now we've, we've got, we kind of got four five foot footprints. So the RMR the Leopold Delta Point Pro, and then the smaller footprint that's RMRCC, Shield RDS, which Holosun is also making optics for. Then you have the Aimpoint footprint, and then you have Holosun's enclosed emitter footprint. So then for, that's five, and I'm sure there's more, but those are the, the five I know about. Um, I, I think we're going to see a point where we start to standardize on about three of those. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, from a manufacturing standpoint, this is going to make sense. Yes. You know, without doubt, you know, both from the optic standpoint and from the gun manufacturers, you know, Glock will be, you know, unless you special order, be doing hollow suns or something and Smith and Wesson will have theirs and SIG's already got their, uh, their sites that they can do. Um, One thing I don't know if we touched a bunch on was the visual attention, the difference in the visual attention of the focus. Um, One of the ways we can get folks to get used to shooting with both eyes open and shifting their attention from the front sight, as we traditionally have taught, to looking at the target of the threat is doing occluded optic work. So kind of like working an aim point on a rifle where you can flip up the end cover and close it and the dominant eye will see the dot and the weak the weak eye or whatever we're calling it this week would see the target and the brain would put them together. We, we're doing that with handguns now. Um, Freddie Blish, who is my boss at Aimpoint, and I teach with at Gunsight, Freddie has found that there's, through the research, there's about 10%, give or take, of folks who, just the way their optic nerve is wired to the brain, um, they cannot shoot that occluded optic stuff without having issues. So 
then it's a question of, you know, the trick is on the instructor where how do you find a way to reach the student with that? And there, there's different ways to do it. I know I've done poems on targets before and had the student read the poem through the optic mm -hmm. to get them to shift their attention from the dot to the target um, or downrange focus like that. So there, there's different ways to do it. Um, you just have to be creative on that. But we know that the occluded optics um, work seems to solve it for the vast majority of students. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that's interesting. What are some other challenges that you found with students as far as teaching them uh, how, to, how to effectively use, use a red dot? So the presentation will be the first part. Um, getting the optic into the eye target, eye threat line sooner. Um, and, be, and then be able to do it consistently because over the years, we've had a fair amount of sloppiness um, with our presentations because the eye will pick up the optic, sorry, pick up the iron sights in its periphery and kind of redirect the sights on target. Um, so it's working on that, getting them to pick up the dots sooner, not necessarily faster. The next is accepting imperfection with it. So one of the things, a couple of things I'll do is I have them work the presentation in reverse. We start out on target. So you're looking at what you want to hit the dots there, and then we'll start by bringing it back farther and farther through the presentation. So from on target to just below your jaw, then on target to back where your hands meet up, then on target eventually back to the holster and work the presentations from each of those steps, giving you more time picking up the dots sooner in the process. Um, accepting. So then on the imperfection part, there's a couple of drills I've got that force the student to shoot it in a way that is radically against their thought process because wait the dot goes in the center of the optic and i'm making them drive the optic to the corners i'm sorry drive the dot to the corners of the optics to show them that as long as their trigger press is good they as long as the dot is visible to them they can take the shot and get the hit that they want to get mm -hmm. and then the last part is accepting the feedback that the optic will give you about your grip, overgripping it, undergripping it, anticipating the shot, trying to make the gun go bang, um, how you're working the trigger when in terms of what you'll see the dot do in the lead up to the to the ignition. So and definitely it's um it's one of those to where it can give you a lot of information if you're if you're co uh, cognizant of uh, what's what's actually happening as you're uh, pressing that trigger. It's, the irons tend to whisper to you. We'll, we'll see it, but we may not necessarily process it. When you see that dot streak across the screen as you screw something up by overgripping or undergripping and trying to make the gun go bang now, yeah, that's when you'll start to get like hear the yelling of the dot at you about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Definitely, because one one of the big things that uh, I run into when people are running dots uh, where they can't find the dots. And that's, you know, all comes down to, you know, uh, grip pressure. You know, they're, they're gripping it with too much of their, you know, index fingers and not enough with their uh, pinkies drive the, drive the dot into their line of sight. The majority of the time that dot's going to go high. If it disappears, it disappears high. Mm -hmm. uh, try to get used to freezing the gun where it's at and moving the head to find it. But once you kind of get where that path is, then it is either, de depending on what verbiage you're comfortable with, tightening the pinkies or tightening your whole hand. Mm -hmm. Scott Jedlinski will talk about 
tightening the pinkies, cranking everything down. Dave Spaulding talks about tightening your grip and draw and that that tightening of the grip will bring it in from wherever it is at usually. Mm-hmm. As long as you got a good, as long as you got a good grip, that'll, yes. that'll do it. So a lot of it comes down to do it, doing all the basic, basic fundamentals correctly. And the red dot will enhance it, but it won't, won't go along by you performance. If you're not doing all everything else, right. Yeah. You've, you've got to put the work in on the front end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Hey, who doesn't like going to the range and shooting, shooting a couple hundred rounds type of thing. But it's dry practice. A lot of it's dry. And mm-hmm. that is the good news is it's free 99. Once you get it on the gun. Just work your dry practice. Um, there was a Phoenix area cop who he doesn't put it out anymore, but for several months, he would put out uh, a dry fire program every day of the week. And it was about five minutes of dry practice every day. And then every so often, he would just throw in a thing that said, you know, today's dry practice is go be a good human. Take out your neighbor's, your neighbor's trash, right? Help them with their yard work. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, Chris doesn't put that out anymore, but it was just five minutes of dry practice that was incredibly doable for everybody around there. And I will work at the start of my dry practice, what I talked about with the presentation on the dot, just five acquisitions of the dot coming from below my chin, five more from where my hands meet up and five more from the holster just to work on acquiring the dot in those environments and then start into whatever I'm going to do dry practice wise. Mm-hmm. Well, dry practice is always the easiest because you can do it and, and it's free too. And that's where you know, you do dry practice and do things. And then when you go to the range, yep, press the trigger. And guess what? You're doing all those things you just did in dry practice. And it's like costing an arm and a leg, as they say, especially when ammo prices become real high or, or ammo becomes scarce. Mm-hmm. So, I like that uh, for it. Great. Well, hey, Eric, we've been asking all our guests this year about naming a event class or place that you think uh, Second Amendment people should go and uh, do or see to, you know, understand our, our country and our and firearms. So I heard Steve Tarani already say the place that employs both of us gun site. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that would have been my first thought. But since Steve already mentioned it, I would go with the battle road in Lexington and Concord. Um, Massachusetts. I had a chance when I went back to finish up grad school in Vermont to get out and walk most of the battle road at both Lexington and Concord and see where the British Army was trying to go out and get in get into a conflict with the colonials and try to, to seize their ammunition and gun caches. Um, and to go spend a bit of time walking that, see the history tied to it, see why um, our, our, our ancestors made the decisions they made and stood on the ground that they stood on and how that actually looked and played out, I think was well worth it. It was, it was as beneficial as any of the academic stuff on that trip. And quite frankly, probably more so as a citizen to see mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I would uh, concur with uh, those kind of places are really good to kind of know and understand that, you know, there were, uh, colonists that were willing to stand there and fight for what they believed in. And, uh, you know, sometimes in America, it may seem a little bit, um, you know, disorganized, but at the same time, the principles that the country was based on are still here. And it's, uh, up to us to maintain those principles and, you know, keep the country going forward and understand where we came from and, mm-hmm. and how we got to where we are today. Yes, Definitely. 
Definitely. That's, that's a good one. I like it. I like it. And if I can get up to Massachusetts sometime to see some of the, some of my friends up there, I probably will most definitely check out the battle road. It, I got a chance to play tourist on that trip. And that was one of the neatest, that was the neatest part of the trip. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's cool. Um, I've been to Gettysburg, been to a lot of different battlefields that have not been, uh, that far up for uh revolutionary war type of things. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, one of those things you really got to realize there were some very committed individuals, uh, you know, back then 1776 and, uh, you really realize that it not, not as easy as sitting back behind a computer these days and, uh, set, sending a quick letter to your congressman or something else like that, which, uh, you know, too many of us don't do. It's actually getting out there and, uh, you know, literally putting your live on the line. They did. So. Well, Eric, where can people find out more about you and Cougar Mountain Solutions? So uh, the website's still a work in progress, but it's cougarmountainsolutions.com slash blog is currently where you can get to the front end on it. Um, I'm on both Instagram and Facebook as Cougar Mountain Solutions. Um, And I, besides teaching for Cougar Mountain Solutions, I've been teaching at Gunsight. Tom Givens was gracious enough to have me at TACCON the last couple of years, and I'll be there again. Uh, when it comes to red dots, in addition to Gunsight's classes, uh, and I put that program together, I'll be in Dallas June 9th through the 11th teaching a pistol-mounted optics instructor class that's an open-ish enrollment. Uh, we're doing combination of law enforcement and those folks who've been through the first two classes in the Range Master Instructor Development course. We was trying to find something that would be equivalent to uh, kind of a state and nationally recognized law enforcement instructor class. And Tom's basic and advanced instructor classes give the student a week's worth of training. So that's why I went with that as the threshold for the non-LE folks to come to that one. Mm -hmm. Um, In the fall, I'm teaching at Guardian Conference, uh, probably doing some pistol-mounted optics stuff, like low light as well. And I'm also doing the Thunderstick Summit in Las Vegas in late October, and as well as teaching at Gunsight and any classes that folks want to host me for. Great. And uh, hopefully, well, probably by the time this airs, uh, TACCON will probably be sold out because the last I saw was uh, TACCON was uh, 80% of the way sold out already. And this it, is just... So uh, as of where we were recording it, it's been sold out for about 12 hours. Oh, okay. Well, it, it sold that. out this morning. <laughs> Yeah, it's sold out incredibly quickly this year. So, mm-hmm. yep. Well, it shows you the popularity of it and the usefulness of what Tom's Tom's put on. Yeah, Tom has done a great job getting a really good mix of trainers that people are interested in seeing, um, and putting them in a place where they can kind of give the wave top highlights of their material and still get good information out to the public. Mm-hmm. And you can select among uh, 40 different trainers over three days to be able to go along and take all kinds of uh, topics from, you know, revolvers to shotguns, to pistol mounted optics, to, you know, first aid. It's uh yeah, I think I, I did three classroom presentations on research and scientific studies and then did live fire blocks or I taught live fire blocks on uh, pistol mounted optics and shotgun this year. So mm-hmm. lots of stuff, lots of stuff to do there. So, well, I didn't get in there soon enough because I couldn't get my vacation approved. So I guess I'll uh, be looking for another year to go uh, with it. But yeah, it's uh, TACCON is on my list of places to go. It's worth it. And I look forward to seeing you there. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm also trying to get to uh, Tom's class if I can make my vacation work uh, sometime and become Range Master certified also. So we would like to do that, but there's only so much time in a year, and I seem to be running out of time. Um, maybe when I retire, I'll be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, I retired, and I find I'm a lot busier now <laughs> than I was when I was working. Yeah, I I understand that. And my wife's already got things things for me to do when I retire. And retirement for me is still probably about 10 years off. So working toward it. Oh, good. Well, Eric, I appreciate your time to, uh, today. Hopefully uh, the instructors take uh, the information we've talked about it and apply it to their classes and what they can do to help uh, their students to use red dots better because uh, it is the wave of the future, but it's not as uh, it's not a panacea for everything. And you got to know where, when, and how to do it and how to make students uh, successful with what they come to class with. Yes, sir. Okay. They're here. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, have a good one. Thanks again. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. I hope you, found it interesting what eric and i were talking about with the red dots and you share it with your friends you have a topic you'd like me to talk about or somebody you think i should interview email me your suggestions at ftp at concealedcarry.com and also check out the other concealed carry podcasts that are out there the on duty off duty podcast the original uh, concealed carry podcast also check out the guardian conference coming on september 15th through the 17th Great opportunity to get lots of world-class training from national trainers. Leave us a comment on our Facebook page, on our website. doesn't matter where. Leave us comments. Always like hearing from people, whether you like an episode or like something different uh, coming up. So our Facebook page is Firearm Trainers Podcast. Our website is firearmtrainerpodcast.com. And our email is ftp at concealedcarry.com. Also want to ask you to visit our sponsors, especially the Farm Trainers Association, FTAProtect.com. Check out their instructor insurance. I've got their insurance product, and I think it's a top-notch product. I think you'll like it, too, once you check into it. And remember, as listeners to this podcast, you get 10% off from your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. We bring this podcast support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Stay safe, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.